Mary Vernon, and I'm talking today to my colleague, the artist Philip Van Curen. Professor Van Curen is a Dallas native and a graduate of SMU, where he earned his Bachelor of Fine Arts in 1974 and his Master of Fine Arts in 1977. In the mid-70s, Philip was accepted into the Whitney Museum of Art Independent Study Program, the first SMU student to be so honored. He has had a constant interaction with the renowned McDowell Colony in New Hampshire, working as a fellow there in 1978 and 2009. From 1991 to 2012, Professor Van Curen was director of the Meadows School's Pollock Gallery and has taught for the Division of Art, Printmaking, and a famous summer studio workshop at SMU's Fort Bergwin campus. Welcome, Philip. Thank you, Mary. You earned both MFA and BFA degrees in art from Meadows, the BFA in 74 and the MFA in 77. You were one of only two SMU students to attend the Whitney Independent Study Program. Can you talk briefly about those experiences? Yes, thank you. I'm going to talk a little bit about just when I first got acquainted with SMU. My first courses at SMU were in 72, which would have been just a few years after the school began in 69. I find that kind of an interesting coincidence that we're sitting here now nearly 50 years later. I had come to SMU as a transfer student at the encouragement of a professor at the time that I'd encountered Robin Koch. And I came to SMU and then got the BFA and was had just an extraordinary educational experience at the time. Also, the building was brand new too, which couldn't have hurt anything. And I was very, we were encouraged to be ambitious. And I had I had a um, subscription to Art Forum magazine and saw this page advertisement for the Whitney Museum of Independent Study Program. I thought, wow, that sounds like a big deal. And it, it was, but at the time I didn't really realize how big a deal it was. And I had zero money. I went to Bill Jordan, who was the um, head of the Meadows Museum and Art and Art History, which was together at the time. And honestly, Bill made it happen. Bill found money for me. I don't know where it came from. And, and I went to New York, and it was just an extraordinary experience for a young artist to go to New York City in 1975. It's kind of colored my whole life in a way, that experience and the experience at SMU, where everything stems from that. You are a multifaceted artist yourself, known for your poetry and for your works on paper. You've been part of solo and group exhibitions worldwide on a regular basis for almost 50 years. Could you tell us a bit about your artistic practice and the place poetry plays in all of this? The poetry came about because my son's mother was a poet, and so I started reading her books as they were laying around the house. This was, you know, this would have been like in 69, 70. And I got really interested and started reading a lot of poetry. It's evolved over the years that it all comes from the poems and everything I make come from encounters. I can't just sit at a table and just cook something out of the blue. I have to have an encounter. And so the encounters are the, are the impulse that brings the poetry into, into existence and the impulse that brings a work of art into existence have grown to be almost exactly the same thing for me. And within that, there's also that love and affection for the garden, which has been there since I was a boy. And so that's all in there. In fact, you know, when Carol Brandt came to SMU to, to be interviewed for her job, and all of us were sitting around the table introducing ourselves, you know, Bill Commodore was a painter. I think you were a painter. And it got to me and I said, gardener. And I just didn't know what else to say that would be accurate because that's that's exactly what I do, I, I would say, with, with all the ways I have of making. What 
brought you here as a professor after your experience at the Whitney and in New York? Well, of course, I, like a lot of MFA graduates in the 70s, I tried to get a teaching job and came close but didn't get it, so I just had to get to work. I was lucky in that I started working for a gentleman that was building architectural models, and which is a whole other part of things that I got to do and which I was involved in using my hands. And you know, that led to some really good experiences, and then one day I got a call to come be a an adjunct because um, Jay Sullivan had a residency in Berlin, and so it changed my life. I, uh, I, I, I had to give up a real solid job for this one semester appointment, and it was actually, it was like going to the Whitney in New York. It was an easy decision to make. Wonderful. Uh, what courses have you particularly enjoyed teaching, and why? Well, I can be honest. I teach them all the same way. I don't, whatever course I'm teaching, Foundations, Open Studio Workshop, and Taos, all my courses are basically the same thing, which is just to be as expansive and and inclusive as I can be. I'm not all that interested in in specific mediums, uh, only I think of mediums as a tool. So whatever course, like I just finished printmaking, we were doing paintings and drawings and printmaking, which would have driven my printmaking teacher, Larry Shoulder, nuts, because he was... He was a very standard printmaking professor. So I, I, I bring everything in. We read poetry. I, I try to throw everything at them, not necessarily to make them professional in that medium, but to, to, to try to get them to understand what a big thing art is and, and that, you know, th- this, this connection they have, this feeling they have moving toward works of art is, is huge. And, it, and, it, and it's um, that that's the key thing to try to instill love, I guess, in their hearts for this thing. The Magnificence of Art, as uh, I've read in a poem that I like by Wendell Berry. You have won a number of prestigious awards, which blended your visual work and your poetry, including two McDowell Colony Fellowships. In 2009, you received the Patricia and Jerry Mangione Fellowship from the McDowell Colony, a residency award for distinguished artists and writers that have worked for at least 30 years. And you had a poetry fellowship at the Vermont Studio Center. Tell me about the importance of these awards to you. Well, I'm kind of an anti-award person myself. I think there's so many people out there that are deserving that, you know, to give awards to a few people, a few persons is probably, uh, it's done. But I've always thought it was an odd thing to do. But I was pleased with the one from McDowell because the McDowell Colony is a big deal. Uh, It's the oldest artist colony in the United States. And they have visual artists, composers, writers. It's just you get all sorts of people there. And so my experience of going there in 78 was even amplified more in 2009, coming in contact with other people, my fondness for music, for writing. It's just you're thrown into all these other people that otherwise it's hard to come across. And so it meant a lot to me. The um, the award that they gave me, I guess if you're going to pay attention to awards, it, you want them to come from from an institution that you have a lot of respect for. And that one, that one's one of the most respected institutions in the United States in the arts. Can you tell us about the connections between your photography and poetry? Briefly discuss the portfolios published by Mannequin Press in Chicago. The most obvious connection between the poetry and the works of art I make is there's just not that many. And I don't really know how to justify that. The, the works of poetry and the, the times that I might take a photo, the, the photography for me, while well, I might have done it back in the 70s, it, the, the work that now constitutes what we're doing at Mannequin Press began in 1991, um, basically when I started teaching the New York class, New York colloquium class. And I started carrying a camera around with me. And at the time, I began to document 
those things in New York City that I had a great affection for, uh, really based on my time there in 75. So I kind of revisited all these places. Where it's, you know, it's a buttress, uh, it's a tree, it, all these different things, that, I, that you know, the, the cloisters, revisiting them. So the connection was pretty easy to make there. And the poetry really comes about from just moments. I may stumble across a word I like, like numinous is a word that I like a lot, and I wrote it down, and eventually I built a poem around it. My most recent poem came from a bird that crashed into my window while I was sitting inside, and it died. So it, it, my response to that moment was to write a poem. And the photography is the same thing. Mannequin, the thing with Mannequin Press that's so interesting, I'm, I'm so honored to be working with Mannequin Press. I got enthralled with uh, copper plate gravures. Uh, you usually just see them in museums. I think the first one I ever saw was the Metropolitan Museum. And it's just a beautiful process. The same thing with um, a cyanotype. And I carried that love for that process around for, gosh, I don't know, 30 years before I found a way to use it. So with the photography, I, I've never liked silver gelatin prints that much. I just, you know, the age, the, the older, the, the photographs that were done in Paris that are the Graviers, that was what I wanted to do. It was real hard to find somebody to work with. And I got lucky with Mannequin Press outside of Chicago. There, Jonathan Higgins, who runs that press, worked with me. And over a period of years, we did 40 proofs. And then he offered, then, then he because I think he took me seriously at that point, he wanted to publish them. So we've done volume one of 10, and right now we're, we're about ready to put out volume two of 10. And it's a dream come true. But again, that's very few images. But I'm not interested in a, putting out a, a large body of work or a lot of images. I mean, if I don't remember the poet that said it once, that said that you know even writing one really fine poem is, is, a, is a powerful thing. And if you can manage to do that, you're a success as a poet. So... Not interested in the numbers, really. It's the, it's the thing itself. Well, you were just talking about the New York Colloquium. You've led the annual January term New York Colloquium trip for both undergraduate and graduate students since 1991. There have been 500 to 600 students total over nearly 30 years. How did that class come about? What does it involve, and why do you think it's particularly valuable for students? Well, especially valuable now with no direct contact between a, a student and a work of art other than like a, a screen. It came about because, you know, our colleague Larry Shoulder taught a New York class and then he quit doing it. And I wanted to do that pretty much not because of, of it being taught before, but because of my experience with the Whitney program and going to New York and, and being expected to look at everything. I wanted to try to duplicate that in a shorter term. So, you know, as you know, or might remember, in the first year we did it, we had eight people. And then it, it, now it's always been somewhere around 20. I had 24 this last time. And it's very independent, uh, and I think the students really respond to that. I, I've just sort of mimicked the Whitney program in, in a two-week span. And they're expected to go out, understand the city, how to get around, where things are, look at things on their own, discuss with me as much as we need to. But it's very independent, and they just, they just flourish under those circumstances. Best thing I've ever done. It is very good. Speaking of New York, you worked for, for some very inventive architects in the 1980s. Among them, I.M. Pei, Henry Cobb, and Philip Johnson. What were they like, and what is the role you had uh, in working for them? I was working for them through uh, David Gibson, who was doing work for Gerald Hines, who's the developer who was working with these architects. And my, I worked on architectural models at the time. Uh, some of them were big site models or, or 
actually models that could be 30 feet high that went into a, into a marketing space. So I, I got to meet those three people on several occasions or the, or the people that worked for them. And the fun of taking their plans and, and sitting there and turning their plans into plans that we could use for a model, that's what I did a lot of. The person that I have most fond memory of is Philip Johnson because he was by far the most uh, outgoing and inclusive and friendly of the group. In fact, in one of the trips to New York, um, he took us all to the Four Seasons and we all had hamburgers. <laughs> and I thought at the time, if I ever told anyone I sat at the Four Seasons with Philip Johnson and ate a hamburger, they thought I was making it up. But I, I've always appreciated architecture. At one point, I thought I might study architecture. I think about architecture all the time because of, of the spatial issues, which I think about in, in art all the time. So I, it was a period of time where it also allowed me to, to have an income. But I got to do something I loved to do, and I was good at it. You also served as director of the Pollock Gallery for the Division of Art in Meadows for many years, from 1991 to 2012. I remember particularly exciting shows during those years. Could you talk uh, about some of the memorable exhibitions you curated there? First of all, it all I had no experience with the gallery, but I was pretty sure that I could do it, and I think I did a good job. My interest was was trying to just organize first-rate exhibitions. And because I was teaching the course in New York, I came in contact with a lot of material at museums and galleries, and I was never shy about inquiring about the possible loan of work, which led to, I mean, one, I, I think, extraordinary show after another. The first, of their, the first of their kind in New York, we had all the prints of Alice Neal. We had almost all the prints of Lucian Freud, uh, an enormous number of drawings by Malevich, Lois Dodd show. The working with Jacob Lawrence was a wonderful treat. There's just I, I just would bring things down if I could get them, and I never really just wanted to show what was in this area because I thought that was being done by other galleries. And again, it's my interest in having students have a, have a have a face-to-face encounter with the real thing, and so I wanted to bring it down. One of the shows I'm, I'm most proud about is the Raul Haig sculpture. Raul Haig was a fantastic sculpture, a friend of Robert Frank's. The Nasher now has one, and I did the first Raul Haig show ever in Texas, and we had like six of the pieces, and it, I was just very proud of that. So it, it was another, just another way to be creative for me. I, I like putting things together. I like making things. <laughs> making a show is like making a work of art. I've read that you're, of your work that the things you make are, quote, prompted by everyday observations that reveal the world as sublimely beautiful, but at the same time, ultimately unknowable. Isn't there a connection between the sublime and the unknowable? Absolutely. You know, the, the, the word sublime, when that, when that word first kind of came up, it meant kind of a, a, a face-to-face um, encounter with something that was fearful and, and to be you know, now it's kind of considered to be subliming is beautiful in, in, a, in the simplest form. But I'm I'm definitely on the side of unknowable. I, I find the unknowable much more interesting, that which we can never really understand, and that you know, we ponder all the time. Much, much more of a, of a draw for me as an artist and as a teacher than, than, than dealing with what I'm pretty certain of. Certainties don't interest me very much. And in my own work, if you could look at my gravures and you look at them and you go, you know, what are these about? And I'd be the last person in the world to tell you. But I know that the, the, like Diane Arbus said, you know, if I didn't take these photographs, these were things no one would see. 
So I, I do feel that that's the case. And if I don't didn't write the poem, this is a the poem is a record of of something that's happened that no one would know about if I didn't write the poem. So it's bringing things just into uh, making things visible that aren't. Last of all, can I tempt you into reading a poem of yours for us? Yes. Uh, thank you. I'm going to read a short one, which I think is best for this. Uh, for this, I'm going to read a poem because the garden is so important. This is a poem that kind of is connected to the garden in a way. And this is a this is a real good example of something happening that that just triggers my need to go in and write a poem. And I will say the poems go through so many changes; it's unbelievable. I've, maybe 30 versions before I arrive at, at, at the thing that I can live with. And this particular poem is called Storm, which is, makes a lot of sense right now because we're in the stormy season, and this poem was written in a season just like that years ago in April. The poem is Storm. The mid-April storm ravishes the garden. Peony heads lie toppled in every direction. Leafed-out pecan branches litter the ground. The day dawns glorious, as almost always happens after a spring storm. Two ancient boxwood that flank the entrance to the back garden are now ravaged. The, the nest capsized that only yesterday held two clown-faced mockingbirds sleeping side by side. Now one lies limp, the other tossed aside. Gathered cold in my hand, I wonder what their last moments might have been like, abandoned by parents and unprepared for the coming catastrophe. Right there we place them in the ground, where no raging wind or rain can do more harm. Nearby I hear their parents sing the sweetest melody. Storm. Thank you, Philip. It's very beautiful. Thank you, Mary. Philip, would you read one more? I think we have time. Thank you, Mary. I'm, I'm going to read from the publication that was actually done when I did this, the 40 years of works on paper at the McKinney Avenue Contemporary, and we decided to do a a little poetry publication instead of a uh, more typical publication for our art show. And it's titled Monody Selected Poems 1978 to 2009. And autumn is a big deal to me. I remember having a conversation with William Styron when he came here once about Emily Dickinson's Yellow Noise and that one terrific poem of hers. And autumn always triggers things. And this is, a, this is an autumn poem. I could almost do a whole separate little book of autumn poems. And this one's titled Another Autumn now that the leaves fallen from the trees in the grove, the lake makes its yearly appearance between dark trunks and small patches all glittering in blue. The oak at the corner made amber by the street lamp glows and shakes in the night breeze. The little owl is back, round face filling the hole in the telephone pole like a total eclipse of the moon. The sharp sounds of the red-tailed hawks drift down in the cool air, and in the distance blue herons skim across the water as parallel to the surface as anything in this world could be. While on the far horizon, the city gleams like a promise made but never fulfilled. It's another autumn. Thank you, Philip. It was wonderful. Thank you, Mary.